You're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast. I'm your host, Jason P. Woodbury, and each week, this show features an interview with an artist explaining where they're coming from creatively. Really excited to share this episode with you. It's with songwriter, Dr. Dog drummer, and noted Twitter personality, Eric Slick, who's got a brand new album of classic pop songcraft out now called Wiseacre. Eric joined Aquarium Drunkard contributor Ben Kramer. You might know him from Radio Free Aquarium Drunkard's The Tonight Zone, as featured on the Adult Swim livestream. And the two got into it all, discussing the new album, Slick's work with his wife, singer Natalie Prass, and how meditation has influenced his general creative outlook. It's a killer record and a wonderful talk, so without delay, let's get into it. I'll speak with you more on the other side. Thanks for listening to Transmissions. When did you start conceiving the songs that ended up on this record? When did you start recording them, and when was it in the can? So I started working on the songs in January of 2018, with no particular direction or vision. I mm-hmm. went up to Woodstock, New York, because my friend had a recording studio up there, and he said that I could use the studio for free as sort of a writing workshop, and I was really feeling stuck in my writing style and uh, was looking to just go somewhere isolated and do the, do the artist in isolation thing. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, I ended up having a really good week up there and wrote a bunch of songs, uh, some of which end up, ended up on the record, but a lot of which were just part of the process, you know, mining some sort of, mining, mining my subconscious for some sort of, like, through line. Mm-hmm. And um, then, um, I, you know, a couple months later, I was like, maybe I could just keep doing this all year. Like, maybe I could do residencies at different places and end up with a record that way and maybe I could record it in piecemeal and work with a bunch of different people. So the first person that I had talked to about recording was Richard Swift. And I, uh, the initial intent was to go to uh, Cottage Grove, Oregon and go to his studio, National Freedom, and try to hack out a bunch of material with Swift. But then he, he passed in um, mm-hmm. July of that year. And he actually uh, he passed away the week that I asked Natalie to marry me. Oh, wow. So it was a very, uh, a very intense week emotionally because Swift and I were very close. And uh, I was on my like engagement vacation with Natalie and she didn't know that I was going to ask her to marry me. And then like Swift passed away and it was like, you know, it, it was just a, it was a heavy thing. And then um, I was like, well, you know, that's, that's now off the table, but maybe I could talk to them about potentially still recording up there. And then I ended up um, blocking out a week at Space Bomb Studios in mm-hmm. Richmond. My, my wife is, is very involved with the whole Space Bomb community mm-hmm. in Richmond. And uh, it, we were in town, and it just seemed like another good place to be isolated and focused so I could work. And then um, I wrote a couple songs that week that were really um, you know, exciting and kind of moving in a, in a new direction for, for my, my songwriting style. And um, then... Um, I I read the Jeff Tweedy book, um, mm. the Jeff Tweedy memoir, mm-hmm. and there was something that really struck me where he was talking about being a songwriter and being monastic and making the songwriting a daily practice and like being way less precious about your uh, you know your your whole uh, approach to songwriting, like setting a timer 
became a huge part of my existence because of that Jeff Tweedy book. Mm. So um, in January of 2019, I was on tour with my wife, and we I, I wrote a song every day on that tour. Mm. Uh, and s- some of them are laughably bad. Like, they're, they're absurd, and they're like, they're kind of like bad funk rap jams, but I was just like laughing while I was recording them just to get through it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then um, uh, I moved to Nashville and um, I was like, I think I have enough material for a record. And um, everyone kept talking about this guy, Jeremy Ferguson, in his studio battle tapes. And they were like, you got to work with Jeremy. He gets the best drum sounds. He's a really cool person. He's very forward thinking. And uh, I think you guys will really hit it off. And so I booked a couple days with him. And that was the first like proper recording uh, session. Oh, actually, I skipped one detail. I did uh, record with Jonathan Rado. I went out to L.A. Mm. for a day and we like we did uh, a couple songs together. But um, those will probably end up being an EP somewhere down the line. But that's, that is an important part of it because I was like, maybe I'll make the record with Rado. If I can't make the record with Richard Swift, (laughs) he's sort of like, you know, Swift adjacent. And they were, they were also very close. And, um, you know, so, so that was also seeming to make sense, but, um, I ended up loving the sessions with Jeremy Ferguson at battle tape so much that, uh, I booked another week in September of 2019 and we, we knocked it out in that week. You know, that sounds like a big shift in intention. Like you mentioned starting off by being like, okay, I'm going to do the isolation thing. Uh, And then you really change your practice, uh, not midstream, but it's such a big change. Like, do you have a feeling now about how you want to go forward? Like, is this your new process or is it an evolving thing where you're like, this was a great experience, but I want to keep tinkering and keep experimenting when I continue to write or or even if you have continued to write since, since wrapping this one? Right, exactly. So I, I think I also tend to have a, like, I like to hop around and try different processes. So if I find that one process isn't, like, producing material that I'm excited about, it, it's almost like uh, I, have to, I have to, like, completely switch gears. So, mm-hmm. like, there's sometimes when I'm working on a song and I'm hung up on it for a long period of time and I'm like, you know what I should do right now? I should read, like should read a book or I should like do a painting or something because if I'm living in this song too much, then I'm never going to see any other perspective on it. So Mm -hmm. like part, part of it is just, you know, switching gears. And I think it's really important to to switch those gears. Um, I do think that the the writing every day thing really made me a better songwriter and it helped me understand song structure so much more that it's, it's a, it's like a valuable tool in the palette now. Like I, I don't have to, I don't have to always do it, and I don't always have to like set a timer. But there's something about that daily process of sitting down and just kind of clearing your thoughts that lends itself to not only communicating better but writing better songs. Mm. That's you know I was going to ask, um, and I wasn't really sure how to incorporate it into this. Uh, so this is one of those questions where I'm like going to kind of feel it out with you here. But um, you know I, I read a bunch of the interviews that you've done over the years, um, particularly around the releases, but I was really struck by how open you were to talk about your meditation practice, but also, you know, very specifically about dreams, but also just, you know, just those topics in general, um, that you were willing to talk about, um, the processes you went through personally that informed, you know, 
uh, all of your life. Um, and what you're describing now you know, is such an intentional thing, and it, it bears a resemblance not only to meditation generally, but also to, I think, some of the things that I, I'd read you say, and I don't have a specific thing in mind. Um, but I'm wondering, like, do you see a meditative quality to that, or is that more perhaps something where you took the discipline from meditation and you could apply it to this? Or is it just kind of a, a natural thing for you where you need to set up these, um, not safeguards, but these structures so that you can accomplish what you want to? Exactly. I mean, uh, for such a long period of time, I had a fear of finishing things and I had a fear of writing because I wasn't sure that it was any good. So a lot of it does come from this place of anxiety of like, I don't ever want to be in that place again where I'm not able to complete something. Mm -hmm. So the meditate, when I started meditating in 2011, that was the first time in my life that I really felt like I had some sort of disciplined practice where I could like do something twice a day and it was always the same and it was very structured. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the byproduct of that practice was becoming a songwriter and learning how to express myself in that way. And it's something that I had always wanted to do my whole life, but never had the discipline to actually do. So now it's like, yeah, you make a great point. I mean, the, the meditation has led to all these other things and having a structure is vital to me being able to complete <laughs> anything. So it, it really is. They are really one in the same. Um, and, and finding new structures and new ways to get things done and new ways of being organized is like a, a very huge part of my life. Mm -hmm. And I also like, it's not to say that I grew up in a chaotic household, but like, you know, my sister and I are both musicians and my parents are very liberal hippies. And so it was, it, I, it, it's not that there was a lack of discipline, but it was just like a very freewheeling kind of house. And what I learned in my adult life is that I, I do need to like have these self-imposed structures in order to to feel good and also to exist in the world. Mm -hmm. I was diagnosed I was diagnosed with ADHD in 2008 and so all of this is sort of a knee-jerk reaction to that. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was I was I was so disappointed in my my doctor and also in the the medical system in general and how like my ADHD was handled that I was like I'm going to take whatever the the natural path is and then um, the, the real watershed moment was actually one of my childhood friends passed away from leukemia. And that sort of, it, it was this real tragedy. He was, you know, he's 24 years old and mm. it kind of, dawned, it kind of dawned on me that like, you know, the way that I was viewing the world was kind of with blinders on. I wasn't necessarily engaging with the world in the way that I wanted to. And so I was depressed for two months and I was, you know, grief stricken. And then I was dealing with that grief and, out of that came a real thirst for like some kind of some kind of structure and also some kind of understanding of like death mm -hmm. and and meditation uh, meditation is often brought up in that regard right like people say that meditating is a, is a way and a practice of not only understanding human suffering and understanding joy but also understanding like death and the potential afterlife mm. so like so, so all of those things came from this, like ADHD diagnosis, and then searching and trying to maybe potentially find a religion that I could attach to because I was I thought that people who were religious, you know, had a regimen and maybe that regimen helped them live in day to day life. And mm -hmm. meditation, the thing that was so appealing about meditation is that like there's so many sects of uh, meditations that are like 
non-deity. Like you're not praying to a right. god. It's not a and and also it's not like this patriarchal thing. Like you're not praying to a male, presumably white god. Mm-hmm. And that was that was really appealing to me because I, I think I got a little freaked out about this like notion of sitting down and being like, yes, Lord. Mm-hmm. He will save me. <laughs> you know, that just kind of freaks me out. It mm-hmm. still freaks me out. Um, so meditation really, you know, uh, cemented all this stuff in my life. And it, again, it's still a practice. Like, I do it every day, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm getting better at it. it, it it's, it's just, it, or if I am, it's not really noticeable to me. All right, let's take a minute now to hear about our sponsor. Creators, are you tired of being paid in clicks and likes? Social media and streaming platforms might help people find your work. They don't always get you paid. With Patreon, you can stop rolling the dice of ad revenue and per stream payouts and grow your creative career through the direct support of the people who care most, your fans. Since Patreon is built for creators, not advertisers, you can skip the middleman and develop a sustainable income source by offering a monthly membership to your fans. In turn, they'll get access to exclusive community, premium content, and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. The creative system is broken, so if you're a podcaster, video maker, musician, writer, illustrator, a creative person of any kind, sign up on Patreon.com now. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com and change the way your creativity is valued by building the steady income stream you deserve. All right, let's get back to transmissions. I found that to be very interesting and I kind of want to ask a little bit more about something that I mentioned, but you've touched on as well as your, your willingness to speak about it. You know, I think some people would be very comfortable doing that. I think some people would be very uncomfortable doing it. And I'm wondering, like, to you, how much of that is your personality? I, too, have ADHD. And something I've heard is that, like, people who do tend to be, they share more. Um, Yeah. And so, you know, I'm wondering if that's a factor. But I'm also wondering, like, how that element of it might play into the record. And, And insofar as, like, your willingness to talk very personally about personal topics um i'll I'll be forthright you know i didn't pour over the lyrics of your previous releases which i've listened to and have enjoyed but i didn't do that in preparation for this i wanted to concentrate on this record but i just wonder like is there do you find yourself being more and more open to talk about these things either as a result of this kind of years-long process that you're discussing is it something that you've always had or is it something that you've like had to you know have with intent and say like i want to be talking about this i want to be out there uh, yeah, a thousand percent. And um, you're totally right. This record was a real, uh, like, it, it was a real slog to, to to sit down and write the lyrics because I wanted to be more open. And I, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to like the um, the artist myth. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I don't, I, I don't, I never really liked when my favorite artists were overly secretive about things when I was growing up. Um, but when I first started making solo material, I was like, you, you know, I was sort of assuming that like I needed more mystique or something. Mm-hmm. Right? And like, and like in my earlier um, records, I was trying intentionally, 
you know, I would like meditate on things and just kind of freehand write, you know, like um, almost like ghost writing where I'd sit with a pen and pad and just like let words come to me, like stream of consciousness style. I mentioned your wife appears on this record. You've worked with your sister extensively. You've spoken about your friendship in the past with the members of Dr. Dog before you became a full member. Um, and then you also talked about kind of searching around for the right producer and right environment for this record. So I'm interested if you could kind of speak to uh, your desire to keep collaborators and people you know very close while also being very open to, uh, you know, a producer who would be a, a, such an influential part of a record being somebody that you may not have worked with or even known before. Right. I mean, for me, what was really important was keeping my collaborators close so that I was still on a straight, narrow path, one that was true to myself. And the reason I was looking for a producer was because I wanted an, I wanted a, a variable. I wanted an X factor that I thought would take the project to a place that I was not capable of achieving on my own. Um, I think what I've learned through doing this record is, how much I enjoy collaborating with people. I think I used to romanticize the notion that you could exist in a bubble, uh, your own bubble, um, sort of like that Bill Callahan song, Prince Alone in the Studio, the, the, the myth of the artist at work chipping away at something forever. Um, but I like collaborating and I like bouncing the, the things that I like off of other people. I just, I felt like I happened to be very lucky that Jeremy Ferguson at Battle Tapes was such a good collaborator right off the bat. Can you, um, can you speak a little bit to what that X factor was that he brought or what you, was it something you were searching for that he brought or was it something he brought out of you? Yeah, I think he enhanced all the things that I might have shied away from or I might have been like, oh, that's kind of a goofy sound. And then he would be like, no, that's actually cool. We can chase that. Or um, in the example of uh, the song Closer to Heaven, there's a guitar solo. And I was like, I think the guitar solo should be very distorted and almost like um, like an Annie Clark solo or like a Robert Fripp solo. And then um, we were trying out different distortion pedals and they weren't quite working. And then he came up with the brilliant idea to hook up a power supply that starves the pedal of its voltage so that it would sound like it was like the guitar was dying. So he was bringing, he was bringing stuff to the table that was actually like pretty strange and off and sometimes abstract. Um, but it was working within the context of what I was doing. So I, I think that's, I think that's what I'm talking about. Like I, I didn't really know Jeremy at all as a person and I didn't really know what his tastes were prior to working with him but it seemed like we were we were reaching the same um, plane a lot of the time. We were so, definitely on, on the same, same wavelength. So to that extent, you know, you've talked uh, about how the writing process was this evolving thing and how, uh, again, you, you kind of were looking for a place to record. So it really seems like really up until the final moments, you were willing to incorporate extensive outside influence or um, collaborators. Uh, and I'm wondering for you, you know, where does your ownership over these songs kind of start and end? Where do you feel you're protective of these things and you have a full vision? And how much of it are you willing just to let that guard down and say, you know, you're right. That isn't the right part for this. Or what do you think I should do here? I, yeah, and I think 
that happens quite often. Uh, especially I hired my friend Andy to play on the record. And a lot of times if I felt like something wasn't working, I would look to him and be like, this lyric is kind of funny, isn't it? Or this chord right here is kind of funny. It's not really working. And he'd be like, yeah, well, maybe you could try, you know, A, B, or C, you know, and we'd, we'd work through that together. Um, so I think the second I got into the studio, I was ready to relinquish some of the control. Also, when you sit with a, with songs for that long of a period of time, you can get so in your head about them and you can get so uh, attached to certain qualities of it. And I, I think that having Jeremy be a variable and also relinquishing control lent, lent itself to the songs being able to breathe a little bit. So when I listen back to the demos of the songs before the record, I can hear how they're developed as far as I could take them. Meaning, meaning that they sound good and they sound like songs and they, they're totally passable as songs, but without that extra collaboration, they wouldn't have grown into the record that I'm actually proud of. Interesting. So kind of turning the focus uh, back just insularly to you, I'm wondering if there are things you can identify uh, accomplishments musically on the record or th uh, things that you didn't think you could have done on a previous release or in the past? Are there things that you look to and you go, you know, that's really something I can point to and say, I improved or I got better. I set out to, maybe it's write a particular type of love song or it's a certain note you couldn't hit or a drum fill you were proud of. Are, are there things that you feel musically you access that you wouldn't have been able to in the past? Absolutely. And uh, certainly, you know, vocal performance was a huge part and a huge focus of this record to make sure that like my vocal performances are something that I could live with for the rest of my life. And so in, in every song, it, it wasn't necessarily a note I could hit, but just uh, really working on the timbre of my voice and making it like a, a soothing sound as opposed to an aggressive sound. I was really wanting to make my voice sound comforting as opposed to uh, brash, which is what I was used to doing. And then, of course, like, there are all kinds of moments throughout the record. Uh, string arrangement-wise, I did the string arrangements for it, and um, I had always felt like my string parts were kind of choppy and angular, and with this one, I had been listening to a lot of Serge Gainsbourg and a lot of um, Dionne Warwick string arrangements to get an idea of, like, uh, making it flow a lot more. So I'm, I'm particularly proud of these string arrangements of the record because I definitely didn't approach string writing like that before. Um, drumming wise, I, I tried to exercise as much restraint as possible. But one fun fact about the record is that on my previous work, I avoided guitar solos at all, at all costs. And now almost every song on this record has some form of a guitar solo. <laughs> Um, and I don't know, it, that's actually something I'm not really sure why I, I just, I, I think I was sick of guitar solos and I wanted to take a break from them. And then luckily, um, Sean Thompson, who plays guitar on the record, is uh, a really accomplished soloist. He played in a band called Promised Land Sound that was on Paradise of Bachelors and the kind of jammy band. Um, but I'd always really respected his guitar playing and I knew that... Um, you know, he could bring something to the table that was uh, sh uh, not not showy, but but tasteful. 
Do you do you feel as much comfort writing for others, be it string arrangements or directing uh, a part of a guitar solo, as you do writing for yourself and for parts that you'll perform? Do you kind of feel okay in that role of ringmaster, or is it two different worlds that don't necessarily overlap? No, they definitely do overlap. I mean, I've had to learn how to become more assertive in every studio situation that I'm in. And then as far as string writing goes, um, I studied composition from 2008 until 2017. So I had really, you know, honed my craft with composing first. So walking into a room with string players was initially intimidating, but as I've done more and more of it, I feel at home with it. Um, and, and then as far as my own part, that's been much more of a process and having to put, the, really having to put the work in, like going back to my rehearsal studio every day for an hour, working on my voice, working on uh, different chord progressions. I, I was like literally opening up books of chord progressions and buying them off the internet, like, you know, trying to uh, increase my chord vocabulary because I had only, you know, taught myself a very limited amount of chords. So I wanted my palette to be wider. Were there to kind of combine these two realms, um, were there things you wanted to use musically or vocally uh, to tie into specific emotions on the record, knowing that a lot of the record is um, very reflective, but also very hopeful um, and reflective of a marriage? I'm wondering if there mm -hmm. are kind of certain elements that you wanted to accomplish that you really uh, took on a greater significance, perhaps because of the subject matter where in the past, maybe you didn't have as strong of a connection. And maybe that's not a great Absolutely. question. I'll cut out this part. No, no, no. Uh, I think that is a good question. No, the, the song Natalie in particular, I always knew I wanted it to feel like an old Hollywood song. So I, I kind of like uh, the song Good Night on the White Album, how that, how that song has this sort of overblown uh, old Hollywood orchestral uh, arrangement. That was what I wanted to do for Natalie. And I always knew that I wanted to do that because I never tried to do a song like that. That was like using strings in a sweet way versus uh, an, an attacking way. Um, so that was something that I was very conscious of. And then as far as like experimenting with synthesizer sounds, I was really influenced by late 70s, early 80s, uh, new wave and then also like new wave adjacent records like Robert Palmer records like looking for clues like these things that were kind of like tense and, and almost nervous sounding synth wise but mixed with a very dry band sound um, that was all very intentional like sonically I, I had been listening to so much of that stuff and I don't know what it is about that era that resonates with me but it, I think like the the use of the synthesizer as this like limit it's very limited in the way that it's used um but it's also really creative because the people who are using it don't quite know the technology yet they're not like master synthesizer uh you know players so i think that there's something kind of naive about it that i was trying to incorporate in my record it's, almost as a almost almost as a character mm. it, it sounds like you're i'm wondering to what extent you feel like you're searching forever for like a, a, the Eric Slick sound and how much you just enjoy the process of experimenting, tinkering and adding. And like, you'll never arrive on one particular set. You won't make two records that sound alike because it'll always just be where your interest lays in that cycle. 
I think so. I mean, I, I think I'm always going to be searching for it. And uh, the, the career trajectories that I've admired are people who experiment. You know, I, I think about Bowie a lot. I think about Eno a lot. And, you know, Eno could never make another green world twice, which I think is amazing. You know, like another green world is a wonderful record that I've listened to hundreds of times, but it sounds absolutely nothing like any of the ambient records. And it sounds absolutely nothing like wrong way up to me. So, like, I, I really do admire that trajectory. And I also think that, like, it bums me out when I hear an artist make two or maybe even ten records in a row. There are only a handful of artists where I'm okay with it. Like, and, and I think what that speaks to is, like, maybe they have a really strong personality. So, for example, like, Neil, yes, Neil, Neil Young is somebody where it's like, I could listen to... 15 records of his that are like that that sound like they could be siblings of harvest or 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 rather even siblings of on the beach which is probably more to my taste but like for some reason i give neil young a pass (laughs) um and but i also know that he does make extremely experimental records same thing with Joni mitchell like there's there are certain Joni mitchell records that sound similar to me but then there's also like the jocko records and then there's also like Joni's guitar synth records, which I think are fascinating. So I, I think like, uh, yeah, I, I don't think I've landed on a sound, but I've landed on something that I'm happy with. And that is, is new. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm actually quite happy with the way Wiseacre came out. And it was a fairly, it was, it wasn't an easy record to write, but it was an e- easy record to make in the studio and everyone had a really good time. And I, that's, I, I want to keep that kind of, I want to keep that attitude as much as possible when creating in the studio. When it comes down to me sitting at a piano and hacking away at the chords, that might, that will always be, uh, you know, not necessarily painful, but definitely, uh, you know, uh, self-involved and uh, sometimes self-deprecating. The press release kind of, calls it bodling euphoria when talking about naming the record after the location where you got married and specifically in the song, Natalie, you're addressing your new wife. You seem to be enjoying what it took to get you to that place. And you're eager about what tomorrow and the future brings both in your eyes, your wife's eyes, but your future together, of course. But the song ends with the line, I would like to go to the beginning. And I'm wondering why you chose to close this song and this piece that's so hopeful and looking forward with a question uh, or, or a prompt saying, you know, I would like to go back to where I started in a certain sense or where we started. W- what's the deal with that? The deal with that is that I wanted to make the message clear to Natalie that if we ever went through a hard time, whether or not it was grief or sadness or even, you know, a temporary contempt towards each other, if one of us said something that was not necessarily the most savory thing, I wanted her to know that we could always go back square one we could always go back to the first time we met and that immense joy we felt for each for each other um i think that joy is it's really important to keep that flame alive in a relationship and it's important to keep it light so that's what i'm saying it's my little it's my little message to her and maybe it's a maybe it's a whistle or maybe i'm screaming it but i want her to know that we can always go back there if we hit if we hit a wall um, 
and relationships often do hit walls, even though even the ones that uh, last the longest. You know, I, I look towards my parents and I think about all the impossible hardships they've been through. And they're always able to go back to the first day that they met and talk about it with a lot of a lot of love and a lot of love for each other. Eric Slick in discussion with Ben Kramer. If you need more from Eric, head over to YouTube and check out his instructional video for when it comes down to it. You too can learn those charmingly difficult chords. We appreciate you listening as always. If you want to help AD out with the show, share it with your friends. You can listen via all the podcasting apps and download direct at AquariumDrunkard.com. Be sure to tune in to the Aquarium Drunkard Show via satellite transmitting from Northeast Los Angeles on Sirius XMU Channel 35 at 7 p.m. California time each Wednesday night. It's hosted by Aquarium Drunkard founder Justin Gage, and it's one of the best things you'll listen to all week. Until next time, take care. We'll be back next Wednesday with another in-depth chat, so be sure to rate and review. Thanks for listening. Be safe.